Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating, letting people know about the show. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, as always, for subscribing, downloading, rating. If you know someone who likes science or is interested in how the world works, please do let them know about the programme. We really do appreciate it. Coming up on this week's programme, we're going to be talking about this idea of the facial feedback hypothesis. It's a a complicated psychology name for forcing yourself to feel happy by forcing your face into a smile. You may have heard of people sticking a pencil in between their teeth and that's supposed to make you feel happy. The question is, if we frown all day or if we smile all day, does it actually change how we feel? There's sort of been lots of controversies along the way, but we may now have an answer. Before that, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Susan Kelleher, uh, who is Assistant Professor of Polymer Chemistry at the School of Chemical Sciences at DCU, and Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from ICRAG. You're both very welcome. Fergus, our first story is about drastic measures. It is about drastic measures and in particular geoengineering solutions. So this is an open letter from 60 scientists from across the globe led by James Hansen. He's formerly of NASA. He did a lot of work in the 80s about global warming um, and how the climate was changing. And what they've done is they've published a paper to say that we need to think about blocking out some of the sun's rays. Um, they think that essentially we're 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 so far into the heating cycle that we have to have to think about doing this drastic measure. And there's a few options. One of which is to put um, effectively sea salt aerosols into the sky to reflect the rays. And another option is to essentially spray sulfur into the atmosphere to reflect out the sun's rays. Quite similar to what happens when a volcano erupts and a lot of sulfur is ejected in, in, into the atmosphere. That's right. I I have challenged a hole which is absolutely not pronounced that way. When, when that <laughs> happened, it got cold. And there is a link between um, volcanoes exploding, the sun's rays being blocking, and the um, origins of the bicycle. But that is a separate story. Okay. <laughs> <If you want. laughs> we'll come back to that a different day. Anyway, so the idea is they're going to spray sulfur up into the atmosphere. They reckon that it will cool the planet by about a degree uh, quite quickly, but it's short-lived. So, so we'd have to pump all the sulphur into the atmosphere every year at a cost of billions of dollars every year. There are some unknowns here. They don't know what's going to happen if we pump all the sulphur up up, in, up into the atmosphere. Um, our country is going to start uh, covering their area of the globe, but not others. How is it going to affect the ozone layer? So in response to this letter, another group of scientists, 400 of them, have published letters saying we shouldn't do this. It all reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where Monty Burns he, he built that huge sun blocker to actually block the sun out of Springfield so he would get a monopoly on electricity generation. I don't think we need to go that far, but certainly in the case of pumping sulfur into the atmosphere, some things may be too risky to try. So this is really interesting because in the 12 years I've done the programme, we've been on this trajectory where we d- we covered um, this you know early forms of geoengineering in, in, in various guises and it was absolute pie in the sky you know, like ridiculous, but what if to um, five years ago where there was research done, you know, and people were saying, look, it's a hybrid. We did a feature on this only um, last year. And again, the tone was, look, we wouldn't want to have to do it, but it's slightly shifted. Now we have, you know, respected scientists saying we need to understand how this might work um, because we we could possibly need it, and sooner than later, and that that is terrifying in a way. Because 
of the implications of messing around with complicated systems. But apparently, up in the up in the atmosphere is the safest way of doing it because it, you know it, it it sort of disappears after a while. They they do have some sort of evidence that 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 will happen. They have an idea of how that will happen because of other um, uh, natural occurrences in the past. But um, it's a real stark stark moment in in our history isn't it when we're where we're going let's actually consider blocking out the sun it is and the risk here is that if the so if we start to block out uh, some of the sun's rays and continue to pollute and pump all that carbon into the atmosphere on the year that you don't have enough sulfur there's going to be um a termination shock so essentially all that carbon is now um all that extra carbon is now in the atmosphere and things will then rapidly warm <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a, um, a a flag in the sand and say I think we're gonna have to deploy this technology. I really do. I think um, as extreme as it sounds, I think within the next twenty years we're going to have to partially block out the sun either by this me- means or another. Um, I I I really just don't see the metrics of what we're looking at when it comes to climate change getting anywhere near where we need them to be. Um, and you know, stories in the paper the last number of months talking about tipping points and escalation cycles that we hadn't factored in and things going much faster than we thought. Um, I think I, I genuinely think what was a, uh, a ludicrous joke that should never be considered will be a practicality in a number of years. And that's flipping terrifying. Susan, our second story uh, has to do with anxiety, funnily enough. Isn't that funny? Yes. We know that emotions such as fear and anxiety that, you know, come from stories such as the one we just heard can make our heartbeat faster, right? Yeah. This is a physiological thing um, that we're all well aware of. And a study has just been published in Nature this week that found the reverse to also be true, which is really interesting. Basically, artificially increasing the heart rate in mice now granted, can raise anxiety levels in those mice. And the idea of this physical response to an emotion is very well known. You know, we know this feeling of getting goose pimples on your arms, you know, if you hear something spooky or that sinking feeling, you know, in your gut if you heard some bad news or anything like that. But for, there's a, for a long time a sort of a debate in this area, whether or not it's a chicken and egg you know, situation, so to speak, whether or not, you know, one causes the other or the other way around. So to test this phenomenon. This is really excellent bioengineering researchers in Stanford. They use what's called optogenetics, um, which is a method of being able to use light to control cells. So this team um, engineered mice to make their muscle cells react to light, um, which is really difficult to do. So fair use to them there doing that alone. And then they put tiny vests on the mice that would direct the light to the heart. And then when the light was pulsed, their heart rate was able to be changed. So they changed their heart rate from a normal, this is quite high for mice, but it's the smaller the mammal, as we know, 660 (laughs) beats per minute, which is normal, to 900 beats per minute. Um, And when they did this, basically what they had them do initially was to, they trained them to press a button as always with these things they pressed a button then they got a shock um, if they wanted water they got this shock um, and then when they increased their heart rate they 
the mice were less willing to press the lever and they were also less willing to go and explore around their cage compared to mice that the mice that had heart rate increased but didn't have this lever um, stimulation. So they, they, they say that it's both not just the heart rate on its own but that the heart rate and this sense of dread that comes with sort of the lever is going to do something bad to you um, to combined that raises this anxiety. Sort of like a Pavlov situation where the beating of the heart within the mouse gave the mouse the sensation that they were yes. in danger um, even though they weren't and the participant although suddenly your heart thumping um, for no reason um, that would <laughs> Now you'd imagine that way. I mean, that Perhaps. doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I mean, give me those numbers again. How many beats a minute to so work? Six hundred and sixty beats per minute, which is the standard for a little mouse, and up to nine hundred. It seems like a lot. It's a it? lot, right? I mean, I guess if we had a what a thirty percent increase in our heart rate, we may would, also feel a bit nervous. I right? would want to not explore myself. <laughs> yeah, you'd hardly just be sitting still waiting for this to pass. But know? this is interesting because you know we're going to be talking later on in the program about the facial feedback hypothesis. This idea that you know if you force yourself into a smile can you make yourself be in a better mood? And there, there's this sense that um, our our physiology, our, our proprioception, where our body is in the world and how we sense our body has an effect on how we feel. Like certainly um, I have, uh, I it, my wife will laugh at this, I have a bit of a hunch when I walk around. It's probably from being so tall. But it, I, I hunch my back quite a bit, right? But I'm doing these exercises my physio gave me to try and fix them. And now I, I, my back is a little bit, and I sort of feel like, I'm stronger or something or I feel like I'm I'm able to do more as a result of, yes. of straightening my back and now everybody's <laughs> fixing their back posture I notice power pose yeah <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's interesting obviously Amy Cuddy's working in power poses yes. uh, was controversial at times but then seemed to be kind of of interesting so this idea that our body is affecting what's going on in our mind it it, it, it it's it's sort of controversial, but in the way, it's, of course, it it, it might because it, it God, we can't be separated. Yeah, yeah really, yeah. really interesting. Um, our third story uh, has to do with lemon juice, uh, Fergus, an old wives' tale. Yeah, so it's all about lemon juice and kidney stones. So, kidney stones—they're crystals of calcium and oxalate and uric acid that form in the kidneys, and they they essentially start out as small crystals and then they can grow into much larger stones, kind of pebble size, all the, all up to fist size. And then eventually... Wow! They, they, yes. They, I didn't know that because I know you, some, you, you, can, you can pass them. Like, I didn't know they got that big. You can, but if they're too big to pass, then they have to be taken out surgically. So, right. And that's when they realise that they're up at fist size. When they do pass out the ureter, they're meant to be unbelievably painful, like 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 the type of pain that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Um, and and they it are, turns out you're... It comes out. Yeah, yeah. Like if you're a man, it, it comes out. It really. comes out. Yeah, yeah it, it comes, comes out. out. Really, yeah. <laughs> um, but there is, there is, I guess, this this um, old wives' tale. But sometimes it has been sort of prescribed, and it's to do with drinking lemon juice uh, to help with kidney stones because lemon juice contains citric acid, and what that can do is that can bind preferentially to the minerals that actually make up the kidney stones. So the problem is, is that. Um, to you need to drink a lot of lemon juice to try and get this effect um, to try and stop the stop the stones uh, from building up so there was a group of Chinese scientists and what they did is they they looked to see um, is it the citric acid in in lemon juice or is it something else and what they found is there there are these vesicle like nanoparticles inside in the lemon juice and they're they're essentially small um, small sacs that are filled with fat and protein and they're also found in ginseng in in grapefruit and in dandelion and what they did is they gave they managed to extract those nanoparticles and give them to 
rats and they slowed the formation of the kidney stones in rats and also made the stones themselves smaller. Ah. Um, so the message here is that it actually challenges the conventional wisdom that it's the citric acid in lemon juice and it could actually be these other um, these other really, really small nanoparticles which opens up a huge new field potentially of can these nanoparticles be isolated? Um, can they be turned into a medicine that can be given to, to people? We are a long way off there, but certainly in the treatment of kidney stones, it may be less sourpuss and more nanoparticle. Ha, very good. I, I think... Um I think it would be great if you, you know, if, if you came to a solution for that um, rather than having to pass or, or surgery, like uh, both of those are. They're undesirable, Susan, aren't they? They are <laughs> that undesirable. Would be the word indeed. Um, our final story has to do with face blindness, which is a, a, a subject I find absolutely fascinating. And actually, if you listen to the podcast on Tuesday, we're going to play a piece uh, about uh, a guy who we who we met, an Irish fellow who had face blindness. It was a story we ran a while back. As if you listen to the podcast, you'll find that on Tuesday. Really interesting story. Let's look out for it. This is to do with the fact that face blindness is actually more common than uh-huh. we thought. Yes. So the chances are you everybody probably knows somebody who has this. So when we think about what face blindness is, we, know, we could say that there's really recognisable faces in Ireland that we would know, right? But what would you say um, about, so think somebody that you think you definitely recognise the face of that everyone in Ireland would recognise. Liam Neeson. Right, Liam Neeson. Now take that face and turn it upside down. Are you going to recognise Liam Neeson easily? No. So this is kind of what they say is an analogy to try to think about what people with face blindness struggle with. So like, it's a little bit like, okay, well, you know, I can see that there's a, you know, a certain type of nose and a certain type of eye um, eyebrow, but I can't actually figure out who this person is. It's not like so, they see like just a blank, no. a blank skull or anything no. like that. Um, and, and like a, a Lego people- man. <laughs> Not at all. That I know of, that we, that they know of. But um, it's it's really very. They find you know, people who have this find it really really difficult to to figure it out um, who these people are. But um, published uh, new research published this week in a journal called Cortex suggests that, like we said, the the number is much higher. So the the number actually they thought was around one in fifty. Which is, which is surprisingly... That's you a know, lot. A lot. And actually now it's been revised to be a bit more like one in 30. Um, which so if you think is about... This, there's two types, isn't there? Because if yes. I remember correctly from this uh, story we did, there's people get a bang on the head, yeah. acquired, and then there's people who are born with it and they don't know yeah. until... They, yes. they could go their whole lives without so the, knowing. The people who are the um, the acquired, it's, it's about one in 30,000. So they're actually the minority of, right. of the cases. But actually, genetic predisposition to this is about one in, in about one in 30, they think. But the, the reason that this study is interesting is because they looked at around 3,300 people and they've found basically that it's a lot broader. It's a much wider spectrum. So this, you know, you might be a bit forgetful of faces or you mightn't quite recognise, you might need a little bit longer to figure out who that person is or where you know them from. So there's an idea that there's a much broader net to catch people in. And so then it's becoming much, much more common or they think that it is much more common because if they're just, I think they're, they're moving the goalposts, but they're also giving people who I think may be, the, you know, everyone has them in our lives with people who are like very forgetful and they, do they even know who I am sort of um, moments or yourselves perhaps or listeners. Um, perhaps it is something that's genetically you're predisposed to. That's you what know. I have. <laughs> and I'd just like to say Sean, Sorry. who is my my uh, niece's uh, boyfriend, who I met in a in a pub in Cork or in a hotel in Cork, and he was wearing a tuxedo, and I was just out of context, and I forgot who he was, mm. and 
Uh, I, he didn't take it well. It's, yeah. it's, I, not, I still don't it's think not he's not over. Fault. So Sean, I am so sorry. Indeed. But, but I think I'm one of those people. Like if I get, I get the context wrong. Yes. If, I, if you show me, I mean, if I met you and you were mm-hmm. like a, in a deep sea diving outfit, <laughs> a la Mr. Ben or something, yes. I think I'd find it difficult. I'd be like, is that you, Susan? Yeah, totally. And, say, yeah, and this is what a lot of me. It's <laughs> what a lot of people do. Actually, they have to use secondary traits and clues. So like people who have this will have to say, okay, you know, I know this. You know, I can't remember their face, but I know the kinds of clothes they wear, or I know the kind of hair that they have or I know the kind of gait that they have or their yeah. walk or their stance or their hunch or whatever it might be. Now, this is what they... <laughs> and they, they, they have to add in loads from their environment to help them remind themselves of who these people are um, you know, in their lives. And there's been lots of awkward, I believe, interactions with... Me? You know, <laughs> just <laughs> you hear funny stories, oh, right? You do. And you know what? We want to hear those funny stories. You can text us for 30 cent 53106. We'll, uh, we'll read out your stories. If you feel like you may have a prosopagnosia, face blindness, if this sounds right to you that you see people's face, you can't remember them, please tell us your awkward stories. Uh, you can text us 53106 for 30 cent and listen out for the podcast on Tuesday. Really great to have you back in studio, uh, Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU and from iCrag, Dr. Fergus McAuliffe. Now, when we're happy, our bodies become flooded with dopamine and serotonin, two types of neurotransmitters in the brain. Our hearts might beat faster and we might even muster a smile. But does it work the other way? Can we contort our faces into a smile and give us a sense of happiness, even change our mood? Well, according to my next guest, maybe. Uh, Nicholas Coles uh, from the Centre for the Study of Language and Information at Stanford University joins me now. Uh, welcome to the programme, Nicholas. I have to say, Hi. this idea of um, of the facial feedback hypothesis, uh, as it's called, has, has really fascinated me. Tell me exactly what is the facial feedback hypothesis? So put simply, it's the idea that that sensory motor feedback from those facial expressions are causally shaping our conscious experience of emotion. So our smiles are making us feel happy and our scowls are making us feel angry and so on. What what, um, do we mean when we say emotions? Because we're talking about a range of different feelings. Is it difficult to define scientifically what these things are? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And so, yeah, emotions have bodily components. They have neural components. They have cognitive components. And so when it comes to the facial feedback hypothesis, usually what we're talking about here is the conscious part of emotion, which is the fact that we all wake up every single day and we do feel emotions. There's a sensation of emotion that we feel throughout our days. And Mm. so the facial feedback hypothesis is focused on that last component of emotion, which is our ability to consciously experience it. So this um, may uh, seem... Uh, sort of new to people, but I'm sure many people listening to the program now have heard of this idea that if you stick a pencil in between your teeth um, and force your face into a smile, that uh, it may lift your mood, uh, or at least that 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 idea was down, uh, that was around. Can you talk to me a little bit about the research up until your work that, um, that sort of looked at this idea that we could force our face to smile even subconsciously and whether or not that does make us feel happier? Yeah, so before this project started, people had been using a variety of different experiments to try to test this idea. So one of them, as you're mentioning, is holding a pen in your mouth in a manner that forces smiling. Sometimes it was as simple as showing people pictures of other people who are smiling and asking them to either mimic that photo or not mimic that photo. 
And then some people were just giving people muscle by muscle instructions on how to configure their face into smiles. And huh. they were doing this not just for smiles and happiness, but all different types of emotions. And so that's where we were a few years ago is there had been about 50 years of experiments being run on this idea. And, and what did these experiments seem to show? So there was a little bit of controversy starting in 2016, but before 2016, what these experiments were showing is that posed facial expressions could impact a variety of different emotional experiences. And so regardless of how you had people pose a smile or how you had them pose a scowl, they would report feeling happier after posing the smiles and angrier after posing the scowls. Right. So I, I put on an angry face and uh, I do that for a while. And afterwards, I feel more angry, even though there's no stimulus for that. Exactly. And, and these were always done usually in a lab based context. So I will say to your listeners, you know, if they're sitting there in traffic and they're scowling right now, well, we haven't run that study yet in traffic. But at least in the laboratory, we would see that it was making people feel angry. Yeah. There are some people who have resting bitch face. I mean, that's just a natural mm -hmm. thing, right? And they look like they're pissed off all the time. And mm -hmm. usually when you speak with them, they are pissed off most of the time. And so I wonder, is that is that anything? It's like a lifelong facial feedback uh, hypothesis. So you said there was some controversy. So the controversy came surrounding this pen in the mouth. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. So in, I believe the year was 2016, 17 labs attempted to replicate a very seminal, that very seminal pen and mouth study, and zero of them were able to do so. And this was in the midst of a broader reckoning in psychology mm. where we were realizing that a lot of our experiments aren't replicating cleanly and that maybe we don't know as much about human behavior as we thought we did. And so when those labs failed to replicate that very famous pen and mouth study, we began wondering if maybe we had been fooling ourselves for the past few decades. Right. Um, and, and I suppose a lot of that science that came out of the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, some of it was really neat. It, uh, you know, it fit really well into, uh, you know, an anecdote or, um, it, it, the, you know, the, the, the so-called findings from these experimental studies seemed very obvious to us. Um, and, and there is a sense, I, I guess, there was a sense for me that it just sounds too too easy, like, like a shortcut to the mind or something. So that, that, that mm -hmm. this replication crisis that you talked about in psychology was across all different types of very interesting and sometimes really seminal um, studies across uh, psychology that so many papers were spawned off of, right? I mean, one, mm -hmm. one that you take this as given and then there was so many papers. So it was a real um, deconstructing of, of the, the sort of building bricks of, of many um, psychological assumptions. So this one is something that you've, you, you were interested in. Talk to me about um, your work in revisiting this idea of the facial feedback hypothesis. Yeah, I'm really impressed by how much you know about the replication crisis. Sometimes I wonder if it's just a crisis that <laughs> I think about on a daily basis. <laughs> but I was a first-year graduate student when this finding failed to replicate. And at the time, I was hoping to build upon these findings, as you mentioned. And I wanted to use the face as a way to manipulate people's emotions and experiments in a very clean way. And so I have started studying this because I wanted to use it as in, in my experiments and then it failed to replicate and I decided I had to dig a little bit deeper. And so that's sort of where my career ended up heading is that I became really interested in the theories 
um, that led to that work mm. and the history of that work. And so now I spend most of my time trying to figure out, well, how is it that we consciously experience emotion and how is it that we can use research on facial feedback to try to further our understanding of how that conscious experience is arising. So tell me about your work with the Many Smiles collaboration and what you're finding uh, trying to replicate this on a, on a much bigger scale. Yeah, so we started the Many Smiles collaboration because I had done a review of the past 50 years of research. And in my review, I did find evidence that facial expressions were causing changes in people's mood. And so there was this discrepancy in the literature. We can't replicate this famous finding, but when we look at all the evidence, it appears that maybe there's an effect there. And so what, what I wanted to do for this collaboration was bring together a large international adversarial team of researchers and design a test that would get to the foundation of our beliefs about these effects. And so some of the people on this collaboration were strong proponents of this idea and some of the people in the collaboration were actually critics of the idea. And we designed an experiment. The experiment had a lot of conditions, but basically we had three different ways of causing people to smile. Uh, one of those was dependent mouth task. One of them was muscle-by-muscle uh, muscle instructions on how to configure their face. Can you, can, you give that to, them, can you give that to me now? Yeah, yeah. So take the corner of using only the, your muscles in your face, so don't use your hands. Take the corner of your lips and pull them back towards your ear. Yeah, okay, I'm doing it. Are, are you doing this at home? We, everybody, I think everybody should be trying to do this. So is that it? That's the only instruction? Or is there more? That's the only instruction. Oh, okay, so pull this. So, yeah. yeah, okay. I'm smiling. Okay, and, and then the other way was watching people uh, um, who are smiling and then trying to copy that, is it? Exactly. Okay, and so what did you find? So what we found is that the looking at the pictures of people who are smiling and mimicking those expressions, that reliably increased people's feelings of happiness. Pulling their lips back towards their ears like your listeners just did reliably increased happiness. The pen and mouth condition, though, did not reliably increase happiness. And so we're now thinking that maybe there were some problems with that method or the way that we have been using that method in psychology, but that these other two approaches are yielding very consistent evidence in support of the theory and support of the broader idea. Okay, so when you did this, did you measure things like um, uh, oxytocin and dopamine? We did, and, and this actually gets back to the part of emotion that we're interested in here. So the theories don't necessarily posit that facial expressions are going to impact other physiological components of emotion. Oh. The theories just state that this is a signal that our mind is using to try to understand how we're feeling in a given moment. So because we're interested in conscious experience, the only thing that we need to measure is people's conscious experience. So we ask them how they're feeling. So, now, so, so just let me will... stop you there for a second. Um, so mm -hmm. are you saying that, because um, we, we talk about, you know, the swirl of um, uh, chemicals in our brains and happiness and mood swings and all that sort of thing. We talk about it like you can, if you were to, you know, to look at an fMRI of someone, you'd know exactly what, you know, whether they were happy or sad. Are you saying that those biomarkers that we associate with emotions all the time in, in you know, we talk about this in pop psychology or, or, or pop science, you're saying that those, those don't show up as, as clearly uh, in the brain um, or in the blood? No, so I think, that those, I think that those signals do exist and I think that they're associated with 
the conscious experience of emotion and they're associated with emotional episodes like you know seeing a bear and you have this big physiological response but what one of the things that they're ultimately doing is they're creating this change in our bodies we're aware of those changes we have the we're constantly monitoring how our bodies are are functioning we, mm. we know when we're hungry we know when our hearts are accelerated and so all of those physiological changes are just signals that our mind then has to do something with and so our mind takes those signals and it tries to figure out how am i feeling right now um and and the only way that we know how you're feeling currently is to ask we don't have a way of putting people in an fmri and knowing exactly what they're consciously experiencing just by looking at things like brain activation. Right. And so so what you're saying is that um, people, rather than having a resting face, if people are, are forced their face into a smile, either consciously or, um, you know, by, by moving their muscles, as you, as you call it, uh, they can make themselves feel happier. Yeah. And then whether that actually creates other physiological changes like decreases in cortisol and increases in dopamine, as you're mentioning, that's actually an outstanding research question. Okay. Um, it's actually possible that that's happening as well. Um, but future research will have to dig a bit deeper into that. I'm surprised that hasn't been done extensively by now. There's, there's been a little, bit of, a little bit of work. I think one of the challenges is that fMRI is an extremely expensive um, way of collecting data. And this idea was already controversial. But I was actually just reading a paper this morning about... Um, a group of a group of researchers who put Botox into people's frowning muscles and wanted to see how that impacted um, brain activation while they were engaging in a basically an emotion emotion related task. They had to judge other people's emotions, and the findings were actually a little a little confusing. But they did find differences um, in activation in uh, an area of the brain called the amygdala. So there is some work out there. Um, but I've tended to focus more on the work where we're measuring the conscious experience of emotion. Well, well, I mean, in a broader scheme of things, why is this research important? That's a good question. For me, emotion is a very fundamental part of what it means to be human. And in my opinion, emotion is what brings us pain and pleasure, suffering and bliss and tragedy and glory. So without emotion, I can't imagine our human condition um, without it. I, it just seems very human to experience emotions. And so I want to understand what it is to be human. So I want to understand how it is that we experience this thing that brings us the best moments in our life and also the worst moments in our life. Is there a possibility that these physical expressions of emotion allow us to amplify the sensation of that emotion? I'm thinking of watching a comedy series at home and never laughing. And then when I'm with my friends laughing out loud and obviously smiling, all of these um, things are, are very social acts. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, what, there was a, a dunk competition uh, at um, the NBA through a dunk competition recently. And mm -hmm. uh, a guy did, a, I think it was like a 720 spin dunk. And the response from a lot of the players on the bench was so extreme 
and their face were, was contorted into holy, sh-, you know, they were so, um, yeah. so surprised by this. And I wonder, it looked to me like they were really enjoying being like blown away and their faces really accentuated that. And I wonder, would they have enjoyed the sensation as much if they were forced to keep a straight face? Is, is, there, is there any science or evidence to suggest that, that our face contorts to amplify the feeling of emotion because emotions are so important to us? So there, there's, there's a lot of work in this area. The Many Smiles collaboration looked at this as well. So one of the parts of the experiment that I didn't mention is that sometimes we showed people pictures of happy things, and then sometimes we just had them stare at a blank screen while they were posing that smile. And so what we found is that if you were looking at pictures of rainbows and butterflies and puppies, and we had you pose a smile, your emotional reaction to those puppies and rainbows and butterflies was more intense. So that's in an experimental context. Hmm. There's two other things that you're bringing up here, though. One of them is the suppression of the outward display of emotion and, and, and whether that would dampen our emotional experience. And, and research is suggesting that it does. And so yeah. my colleague at Stanford, James Gross, does a lot of work there. And the constant suppression of our emotional, um, the suppression of our emotional expressions um, does tend to dampen our experience of those emotions and have a variety of other negative downstream consequences like feelings of inauthenticity. Right. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite an emotional person. Um, and yet when I walk into news talk, I have to act like a normal person in here. <laughs> looking at my producer, Marais, and she's like, I am very glad you keep those emotions suppressed while you're in here. Very interesting stuff. Really enjoy speaking. We just speaking. need to have a good cry. We, yeah, exactly. I'll call you up <laughs> and we can cry at each other and, and, and enhance the emotion, uh, Nicholas. Nicholas Coles is from the Centre for the Study of Language and Information at Stanford University. Nicholas, thanks very much. Thank you. It's true, though, isn't it, about um, resting bitch face? Like, and I wonder, like, there's some people who have reached adulthood and you can just tell they're going to be difficult just by the way their face is. And I wonder, is it through just frowning or just being, like, sceptical on their face all the time? Or or maybe they've just had a tougher life and they're just, like, they just feel that, you know, good things are not going to come to them as much and that has resulted in being pessimistic or whatever. But, um... It's funny how your emotions like sort of shape your face, isn't it? Over time, like you can, if someone is a real laugher, you can see those kind of, you know, what do they call them? Crow's feet, isn't it? They come from your eyes if you're, yeah. Um, I think they're great to see on people's faces. Like when you can see someone's faces, usually creased with laughter. Generally, you're going to have a good experience with that person. We were talking last week about revenge and I uh, was mentioning Moby Dick as, you know, as an example of, of revenge in literature. Uh, Noel says, Moby Dick story aside, are there any examples of revenge in animals besides humans? You see, I think that's a very difficult thing um, to, to, to actually study scientifically because you know that level of consciousness isn't really something we can measure we can't measure the intentions of animals in the same way as we can ask people questions Uh, so for example if you had two troops of monkeys and one uh, monkey you know beat the crap out of another uh, monkey from a different troop you know figuring out whether or not that the a, a further attack by the troop on that monkey or whatever is revenge or motivated by something else or strategic in a sort of you know attack defense game theory way like it's really difficult to tell because monkeys don't talk um so i don't know if you could ever really measure revenge in non-human species 
Maybe I, I will ask though. I, I will ask. Another says no mention of morality, Christianity, turning the other cheek. How can we do this research without examination examination of morality slash religious morality? We don't need religion for morality, do you? You can have morality without religion. And yeah, I suppose one of the tenets of Christianity, like if you look at the most major religions, there's a big overlap in terms of preservation of a um, cooperative society. Like so whether, you know, you're looking at Buddhism or um, uh, Islam faith or you're looking at Christianity, the basic tenets are don't kill each other and be respectful of one another, give each other space and so on, that sort of thing. And I think um, if we if we look at that, most of those would sort of be you know, you would imagine they would sort of frown on revenge. But then didn't the Old Testament have that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth sort of jazz going on about it? Isn't that right? That was Old Testament, wasn't it? Yeah. New Testament, less less, less of the revenge. No, there was a bit of it, wasn't it? I'm not, a, I have, I'm not an expert. I'm looking at Ray's like she's some sort of expert on the New Testament. I don't even know if, 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 if you're a practicing Christian. I, 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 I don't know if... Um, if obviously we do get a huge amount of our morals that came down from from religion, but we probably had morals before religion. Religion was a way of codifying it and then making it sort of official, and then uh, a way of sort of putting structure to society to make it more stable. I don't think we need religion anymore for morality, but uh, I, I would say the the concept of revenge uh, and the and the and the righteousness of it is probably similar across cultures, even though there are different faiths. I would imagine most people would consider actually I was trying to think about I'm thinking about conflicts in the Middle East I'm thinking about retribution and balanced re- balanced retaliation and that doesn't really necessarily happen does it so maybe I'm talking gibberish another person we were talking about uh, discoveries from the web telescope that show that there are galaxies in the sky that are too big for the their age and it might get us to think about our understanding of how galaxies form Anyway, someone says it's the James Webb Telescope, not the James West Telescope. Uh, no, that's right. We 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 made an editorial decision to call it the J West Telescope. Um, uh, I mean, because of the controversy around James Webb, and people can accuse us of being woke, but um, the the uh, the telescope is called the James Webb Telescope. However, James Webb was. Uh, reportedly a homophobe who purged gay people from NASA and there are lots of people who think that that's not the sort of person that should be honoured. It's actually a, a conversation that we had in Dublin in the Aviva at a conference that I run called SciCom and it's a question about who we honour and why and who gets to have a telescope named after them. And since then, I've had a bit of a, a, a Twitter exchange with an, an organisation that run a Cromwell Museum uh, in the UK and I just thought... I'm sorry, <laughs> you have a museum to Cromwell and there was a, a picture of uh, someone who was dressing up as one of Cromwell's soldiers and I was like, I mean, I, I'm from maybe from the UK's point of view, that's fine, but actually from an Irish person's point of view, the idea that that man who oversaw like literally the massacre of, of Ireland and the, the robbing of Ireland's wealth and, and giving it to, to, um, to the British, the, the idea that that person would be celebrated in a museum, even though they say warts and all, was, uh, uh, you know, very, very strange to me. I, I mean, I, it's an op- open for debate. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Um, I don't think that telescope should have been named after him. I I think there are plenty of people you can name a telescope after. And I think if, uh, you know, we should be thinking about who we put up in a pedestal and what that says about who we celebrate in in science, uh, uh, as in 
as we do when we name buildings or submarines. Another says, great story, the revisionists will be happy. Are you talking about the revisionists of the name of the telescope or are you talking about people who are um, now having to revise the way galaxies form in our universe? I've no idea, actually. It could, be, it could be applicable to either that text. Thank you for all of your comments. I'd love to hear your responses to that. Maybe we got it wrong. You can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. That's it from us on this week's podcast. Thanks to Marais O'Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.